The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. Sigmund Freud once said, quote, Creative writers are valuable allies, and their evidence is to be prized highly, for they are apt to know a whole host of things between heaven and earth of which our philosophy has not yet let us dream. In their knowledge of the mind, they are far in advance of us everyday people. End quote. Respect for writers, admiration for their talents, and, in his own works, an imitator of their penchant for metaphor and their genius at building suspense and revelation. And by making his science as readable as literature and his interpretations of the human psyche as compelling as any detective story or literary criticism, for that matter, Freud became all tangled up in literature. He drew from it, he wrote something close to it, he dominated it for decades— but what was that influence exactly? How did it work? And what does it mean? We look at Freud and fiction today on the History of Literature. Here we go. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Sigmund Freud, back to Vienna, a place I love to be. We did an episode on Freud's life not too long ago, last week. This one is kind of a companion to that, but they stand alone, too. I don't think one comes before the other, necessarily, if you'd like to start with this one. We also have a visit today from two scholars who are helping us sort through Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes and the other woman, quote-unquote, who was more than just the anonymous silhouette she sometimes appears to be in accounts of those poetic geniuses and their lives and their stormy and tragic relationship. She was her own person, quite accomplished in her field, a dramatically different life from Sylvia Plath's. And Ted Hughes, he was drawn to Asia Wevel, there's no question. And when you see pictures of them and read about Asya's life, and so on, you can understand why. On the other hand, Ted and Sylvia were a good pair too, good for each other's poetry, two bright candles lighting up the same table. But all good candles eventually burn out, some more faster than others, and it doesn't help when someone flings open the door and lets in all the wind, too much oxygen. But let's, let's end the metaphor there because it's not going to help us much. We've squeezed the juice on that one, my friends. We're left with pits and pulps and a great big, huh? <laughs> H-U-H with four question marks. Moving on. Freud. Do I need to set this up any more than I have? Or should we just bring out the Asya Wevel guest for the preview? I did want to tell you that next week, here's what we have on tap coming up on Thursday Next episode, we are hopefully going to have something new we're trying here. The last episode of every month, I'm going to try to run a, a best of the History of Literature podcast episode of sorts, where we're going to take snippets of interviews and discussions and tie them together thematically. This one, the first one up, will be Lolita. And isn't this a nice tie-in with Freud, since nobody really hated Freud more than Nabokov, the Viennese witch doctor. He used to call him. 
Maybe today I'll talk a little bit about why that was. I think we'll get there. And next week, let's go ahead and call it Plath Week. We will have a conversation on Monday with Sylvia Plath's biographer. This is one of the great biographies of our day, people. It is definitely worth your time. Red Comet, The Short Life and Blazing Art of Sylvia Plath by our guest, Heather Clark. We're going to focus in particular on the Plath-Hughes creative relationship. What did they each bring to the table poetically as well as personally? What style of poetry were they writing? What did they want to write? What did they recognize in each other's work? To what extent did they work together? All that stuff. My old fascination, Lennon and McCartney, two geniuses working side by side, inspiring rivalry, rivalrous, rivalrously, <laughs> rivaling one another, competing. What does that do for the people and the art? And then on Thursday, we will introduce the third figure, Asia Wevel. The woman who came between Ted and Sylvia, a bitter triangle that did not end well. It's one of the sadder chapters in literary history that Sylvia took her own life and then Asia did too. And Ted Hughes was in the middle of both. And all of them still writing and Ted and Sylvia especially being two of the greatest poets of the 20th century. It's going to be a fascinating week next week. So stay tuned. Oh. I didn't tell you about our Asia Wevel guests, Peter Steinberg, an archivist, and Professor Julie Goodspeed Chadwick, an expert in Plath and Wevel. The two of them have collaborated on a new collection of Asia Wevel's writings, her journals and letters and so on. So we will have that conversation for you next week. And that's going to be what we're going to preview for you now. Asia Wevel. And then we will come back and dig into Sigmund Freud and fiction. All that after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. (music) 
Okay, I am joined now by two scholars who have co-edited a book of writings by Asia Wevel, the famous other woman in the Ted Hughes-Sylvia Plath relationship. Asia was herself a poet and a successful advertising professional whose creative work has often been overlooked in the dramatic accounts of this stormy and tragic literary and love triangle. Professor Julie Goodspeed-Chadwick and Peter Steinberg, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you. Thanks. So we are going to have our full interview coming up in an episode shortly. I was wondering if you might be able to give us a taste of what's in the book. Julie, is there a passage that you'd like to read that would help us see what we might expect from the collected writings of Asia Wevel? Yes, indeed. So I have selected two stanzas from a poem that Asia translated. Um, the poem is originally by Yehuda Amakai. And these two stanzas, I think, capture the spirit of so much of the work um, in the letters and the journals and the poems, um, as, as well as in the miscellaneous texts. And, and two, it underscores the feminist recovery efforts that Peter and I um, brought to the book. So the two stanzas read thus. This is from Like Our Bodies Imprint. Like Our Bodies Imprint. Not a sign will remain that we were in this place. The world closes behind us. The sand straightens itself. Dates are already in view in which you no longer exist. Already a wind blows clouds, which will not rain on us both. Mm. And what resonated with you? Uh, why did you choose that passage? So in class studies and he studies historically, um, Asia is a figure um, that was erased from the record mm. or elited or misrepresented mm-hmm. um, when she was represented at all. And so um, yeah. I think that, that the, the poem captures that, that erasure and, and to that, that insistence, though, um, you know, paradoxically, that there is a life lit, that there is a, a love you know, that had manifested. And that's even though the record might and time might uh, erode that or erase it, there's still the traces. And so Peter and I, you know, we're essentially literary detectives in many respects um, in, in bringing out this this book and the, the theme of, you know, being bereft um, and, of, and of loss and, and love, I think, resonates mm. in Asia's writings too. Yeah, there is so, I mean, So often, she's not even given a name in the account. She's just Ted Mm -hmm. Hughes's next wife or the the woman who he left Sylvia for or the woman who was intruding or, you know, that her name is is often not even mentioned. And then when you see pictures of her uh, and Ted, Ted is quite a striking person very handsome and very rugged and 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 when you see pictures of her Asia you, they're almost like the two of them could almost be movie stars mm-hmm. you know they are so glamorous looking and so striking and Sylvia who on the page is like a genius and comes across with her brilliance and her poetry is so fierce and but when you just see photos she almost looks like a schoolgirl compared with the two of them and she looks so young and so you know it it just uh it it really is a relationship that deserves more context and is much fuller and richer for the three of them than just to sort of have Asia be kind of a, a footnote or just a, a brief mention 
you know, she really was this third point on the triangle. Mm-hmm. I think it's beautifully stated. Peter, is there a, a passage you'd like to share with us? Yes, I'm going to read a from a letter that she wrote to her parents on Friday, July 17th, 1959 in Trincumalee, Ceylon, which is now Sri Lanka. Oh, how you would despair if you were on this ship now, like me, totally alone, nobody really to speak to, and delayed indefinitely in this strange, exotic desert island harbor. The journey is getting on everyone's nerves except the captain's, who seems to have the patience of Job, the blood pressure of a refrigerator and the pompousness of a magistrate. There are only 12 passengers left in a space designed for 100. The majority are small, monkey-like Burmese officers who look like aged children, especially their bodies, which look like those of 11-year-old boys. They spend all their time gambling or being extraordinarily arrogant and rude to the dozens of Indian stewards who have the misfortune to have to earn their living in this way, or perhaps they are fortunate, being Indians, to earn any kind of living in any kind of way. Uh, that's all I'll read from the letter. Uh, I chose this one, this, this passage in particular, because sailing by ship as she was doing, you know, she left England and then she sailed to Ceylon, now Sri Lanka, by herself. Uh, she was recently separated from her second husband, David Lipsy, and she was going on her way to uh, meet David Wevel in Burma. And mm. it's just an extraordinary passage that it's actually very extreme, too, the, the, the fact that she would uproot her life like that in England for love. Yeah. And to travel halfway around the world in conditions that sound abysmal. Uh, I want to go take a shower just thinking about how filthy it must have been. <laughs> and she writes about it in such a clear and concise way. It's, it's, it's very pointed. It's very stylized. And it's not something I think many of the readers of this book, and I hope there are many readers of this book, but it's not, it's not a mode of travel any of us are going to be familiar with. And I think that that's why I selected it. I think it, it, there's value to to looking at some of that stuff. And, and she writes about it very, very well, I think, in that letter. Mm. Well, she seems to have traveled through life as something of a force of nature. And she certainly, in, when she encountered Hughes and Plath, it certainly had the, the force of something like a hurricane. We will look forward to getting the whole story soon. Julie Goodspeed Chadwick and Peter Steinberg, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you so much. Thank you. discussion of Freud's life, I told a story about Freud in America, where he saw the co-educational system, girls being taught alongside boys, which was unlike the teaching system in Europe at the time, and, and how I talked about how Freud made the observation and then jumped 
to conclusions about cultural significance. The girls develop faster, he said. They lose respect for the male gender. Already, he's kind of stretching things here. This is more of a thought experiment or a theory than anything he's measured. And then he says, and by the time they're adults, they lead men around by the nose. Okay, that's another thing he hasn't measured. This could be something he based on a dinner party or two or some other anecdote, a movie he saw or something. This isn't exactly science, and there's really no evidence offered for how this traces back to the coeducational system. Again, there could be a lot of reasons. No, this is Freud as the conquistador, as he thought of himself, blazing forward into new territories. And then he said, it's better in Europe where the educational system is different and men take the lead as it should be. So there he's let his own bias jump in and he's drawn a new conclusion from his old conclusions. You might agree with him or whatever. That's not really the point. The point I'm making is how Freud is taking observations turning them into conclusions, which might be true or might have some air of truth or might be useful because they make us think, even to push back might enlarge our circumference, as Virginia Woolf put it. But it's not science. Somewhere between science and art. Camille Paglia said this about Freud in 1990, quote, Freud has no rivals among his successors because they think he wrote science, when in fact, he wrote art, end quote. I don't think it's particularly controversial now as a statement or even especially insightful. Some of Freud's theories collapsed pretty quickly as science. What interests me is that for several decades, people were kind of in the middle. It's not science, but there's some science to it. I mean, Freud wasn't just making all this up. He had patients and he analyzed them and he was basing his theories in actual cases for the most part, or at least to some extent, and he worked alongside many others who did the same, some of them much more rigorous scientists than Freud, and some of his methods were, were decently scientific. Others took the baton and did some very impressive things with what Freud initiated, and I'm sure it has actually helped a lot of people. And maybe some others have misused Freud's teachings and Maybe there's been some harm there, too. But this isn't a podcast about psychoanalysis. It's about Freud and fiction. And we can also see in this area some wild swings. Writers and critics and readers who are wrestling with Freud and who think that literature might be changed now. We see this throughout the 20th century, especially the mid-20th century. People wondering, Freud might have given us a set of new tools to use. Everywhere there are locks, and Freud was handing out picks. So, Freud and literature have deep roots. We mentioned last time that he was inspired by an essay by Goethe. That's what made him want to pursue medicine in the first place. I've given you a couple of quotes where he acknowledges his mind or his, his approach, I should say, is not exactly a scientific one, that it was verging on art and he was pushing into territory where creative writers already were. He believed the interpretation of dreams was his most important work, but the one he liked the best was his book about Leonardo da Vinci, a psychobiography of a great figure, where he analyzes a dream da Vinci described and some other biographical facts and analyzes, applies this analysis to some of da Vinci's paintings, and it's all very provocative, but you would never allow this as a true medical or 
scientific opinion. We don't let doctors opine on the mental states of individuals who are not their patients. Even if that person is in the public eye as often as a Hollywood celebrity or the president. Freud was taking a few biographical scraps and looking at the paintings of da Vinci, and he created a whole inner world, thoughts and impulses deep within da Vinci's unconscious, and discovered, quote-unquote, or revealed, let's say, by Freud hundreds of years later. Would a scientist do this? Probably not. Would a, a kind of art critic or detective? Sure. Why not? Would a novelist? Absolutely. Absolutely. Freud wanted desperately to win the Nobel Prize for Physiology. After all, he viewed himself as a man of medicine, a scientist, unlocking secret mysteries of the mind. I discovered the secret of dreams. He said he wanted to help people with the talking cure, and yet the Nobel Prize was denied him. Nobel, no Nobel Prize, 1917, he wrote in his diaries. The next year, there was war all around him. He wrote, Armistice with Italy, war over. He wrote that on November 3rd, 1918. And the next day, November 4th, Nobel Prize set aside. He was in his 60s then. In his 70s, he was getting morose. In 1930, he wrote, Definitely passed over for Nobel Prize. That year, though, he had won a different prize, the most prestigious prize he had ever won. It wasn't for physiology or medicine or science. It was for literature. The Goethe Prize, awarded for literary achievement, awarded to someone whose creative work is worthy of Goethe's memory. It went to novelists and poets and philosophers, and it went to Freud. Psychoanalysis has not merely stirred up and enriched medical science, the prize committee said, but the mental world of the artist and the pastor, the historian and the educator as well, stirred up, enriched. And the tools Freud used were seized upon by others, especially literary critics, but we'll get to that in a moment. Let's start with Freud as a reader. Freud read widely. He was as interested in culture and cultural phenomena as he was in the, in the mind. You can see that in his later works, especially. In 1925, he wrote that he'd never felt any particular predilection for the career of a doctor. Instead, he was moved by curiosity aimed at human concerns. Ten years later, he said that psychotherapy and medicine had been a detour on the road to what he really wanted to study, cultural problems. He was a philosopher and sociologist and cultural critic at heart. And he got there by going deep into the mind and trying to see how human beings think at the individual level, what makes them tick. He loved Dostoevsky, which is not a surprise. The depth of the psychological insight is probably what he had in mind when he said that creative writers had valuable insights that the rest of us are trying to learn from. I also think he might have liked the way in Dostoevsky that Characters did things out of their control. They laugh at inappropriate times because they can't help it. We see in Dostoevsky a mind constantly wrestling with itself. Strange comments, slips of the tongue, uncontrolled urges that carry people away, dreams, all of these reveal character in Dostoevsky just as it does in Freud's analytical methods. Freud extended this 
to Dostoevsky's own gambling and how it seemed to alleviate his guilt. He wrote better when he'd lost everything. Dostoevsky's wife said, well, Freud thought that was because Dostoevsky viewed gambling losses as punishments, self-punishments, and once he'd done that, he felt freer to write from a place of less guilt. The Brothers Karamazov is the most magnificent novel ever written, Freud said. Dostoevsky's place as a creative artist is not far behind Shakespeare. Freud truly revered creativity and art. He said, before the problem of the creative artist, analysis must, alas, lay down its arms. Which did not stop him from diving in and analyzing Dostoevsky in his books. Look at the parasite, he said of the Brothers Karamazov. There's no coincidence here. Oedipus Rex, Hamlet, the Brothers Karamazov, they all involve killing one's father. Freud's essay on Dostoevsky was very uh, influential, paved the way for a lot of literary criticism that came after. But Freud said, ah, the essay is trivial. And quote, it was written as a favor for someone and written reluctantly. End quote. But critics drew from it. This is how to apply psychology and psychoanalytic techniques to works of art. Other books Freud liked. The poetry of Heinrich Hein, the essays and sketches of Mark Twain. He liked Dickens, especially David Copperfield. He liked The Jungle Book by Rudyard Kipling, and a huge fan of Goethe, and a huge fan of Paradise Lost by John Milton. But Dostoevsky, Shakespeare, and Sophocles. For Freud, this is getting at the core. Children in love with their mother or conflicted about it, and killing their father, or wanting to, or conflicted about it. That's central to Freud's thinking of the infant and childhood and adolescent mind, that impulse and the repression of it. Seeing these themes in great works of art was like a confirmation of sorts for Freud, an inspiration and a confirmation. If your interest is human beings and the mind, and your other interest is cultural issues, cultural problems, well, literature is right there for you, isn't it? It's the richest source material to use. Human beings are the true material, but creative writers have distilled all the humanity into its purest form, kind of like the cocaine that Freud enjoyed so much. But there's one other piece of literature we have to cover, because it was also spreading like wildfire in these days, detective fiction, and specifically the Sherlock Holmes stories. Apparently, as far as I can tell, we have no confirmation that Freud actually read Arthur Conan Doyle, but his daughter Anna has said that her father loved detective stories and thrillers, and I think it's a very safe assumption that Freud would have encountered these Sherlock Holmes stories. He probably enjoyed the parts where Holmes uses cocaine even over Watson's objections. Freud believed cocaine had medicinal value. So did lots of people at the time. Alertness, euphoria. It was used to soothe teething babies. It was a local anesthetic that helped in ophthalmology, eye surgery. It was rubbed in the scalp to cure dandruff, supposedly. And Freud delivered what now seems like a comically wrong assessment in his, quote, Song of Praise to This Magical Substance, 
end quote. He said it brings about normal euphoria without any of the unpleasant after effects that follow exhilaration brought about by alcoholic beverages. No craving for the further use of, o- of cocaine appears after the first use or even after repeated taking of the drug, end quote. Well, Sherlock Holmes had a similar view, I guess. But let's set the cocaine overlap aside. A bigger overlap, a more significant one for our purposes, are the narrative techniques and trappings of the detective fiction that Conan Doyle basically perfected. Freud uses them liberally. The result is an intensely readable narrative with a hero at the center, Freud himself, who is basically solving a patient the way Sherlock Holmes solves a crime. The book to read here is Dora, an analysis of a case of hysteria. It's one of a handful of Freud's case histories. We could start with the word case, by the way, which is directly the same as what you defined in a detective. We're dealing with cases. Freud started out with some background in Dora. Here's how this patient came to me. I treated her father. He told me about his daughter and her suffering. It's just like... Watson. It's like Watson's narrative. Freud has combined Holmes and Watson into one character, himself. He says, it's, it's, it will remind you of the introduction to the Holmes stories where Watson says, we're sitting in the room, Holmes is practicing his violin, there was a knock at the door. That's the feel and flavor of this. There's something starting, a journey. There's a description of the dilemma For Holmes and Watson, it's someone telling them about a missing jewel or a disappearance or some other kind of crime. For Freud, it's some kind of problem in the patient. Nervous laughter, perhaps. Tormenting dreams. A psychological problem that's manifesting itself in unusual behavior. Holmes, of course, is a shrewd observer. Aha, he will say. He's wearing... So-and-so is wearing shoes with this kind of leather. It means he was in the army serving in Burma, which means he's probably just returned a few weeks ago, that kind of thing. Remember that Conan Doyle was a doctor, and his own model for this was a medical man, a teacher he had in Scotland. Doctors need to look carefully at humans for this kind of thing, to read signs. Holmes solves crimes, which is a fun application of these observational skills, but it's very close to what Freud was doing and how Freud portrayed himself in these case histories. Freud establishes himself as a kind of expert. He says, I've treated patients for years. I've seen this. I've developed a kind of sixth sense about that. I have a very acute eye for this and so on. That's the, that's the impression that Freud is leaving, is that he's He's seen so many of these patients, he's good at this. He knows what he can see. And yet, even so, there's a mystery here. As Dora talks, he hears clues. Aha, you said this word, which means this. You had a dream about X. Well, clearly that means Y. Freud is hearing clues, retracing the past, digging into layers that aren't easily seen. He shifts time from the present to the past and different different periods in the past, it unfolds for the reader with the pace and the excitement of a detective story. There's a problem. It's hidden to everyone, and the ace detective 
is discovering it as we watch, finding some clues, developing theories, finding more clues, getting closer. Maybe we're just a step behind trying to keep up. Maybe there's a few false leads, but it leads to a great aha moment. The discovery is made. All is revealed. A troubled world is put back in order. And the hero, Holmes or Freud, has saved the day. Holmes has a need for knowledge, for facts, for precision. Tell me what happened precisely. Do not leave anything out. When you've heard that in his clipped voice, or in my case, the voice of my favorite Holmes, Jeremy Brett, you recognize it in Freud's demands to Dora. Describe the scene. What are the details? What were the actual words that were used? Now, part of this is so that Freud can get good information, or Holmes for that matter. But the effect on the reader is of a master detective who needs clues. It conveys, once again, there's a man with expertise and abilities who can take seemingly insignificant or overlooked details and find great truths within them. The clinical language is here as a backdrop, the theories that need to be tested, the analytical ideas that the great psychoanalysis or psychoanalyst slash detective draws upon. But this isn't a scientific essay or a medical journal article. It reads like a detective story. The characters, the settings, the dialogue, all of this. And listen to the great reveal. I don't know how much detail you need to follow what I'm about to read. I suspect you don't need much since it's the tone and the air of revelation that I'm going for here. The astonished onlookers... Imagine in Arthur Conan Doyle or Agatha Christie or Scooby-Doo the moment when the detectives announce that the problem has been solved and here's how it was solved and here's the answer and everyone is shocked. A scene like that one is at the climax of Dora. No pun intended. Dora sets this up at one of... Dora's always saying convenient lines of dialogue. It's kind of like Play-Doh. Play-Doh. The people talking to Socrates always seem to say something that just perfectly sets up Socrates, as if Socrates is walking around with the perfect straight men. Well, Dora plays the straight man for Freud in this numerous times. At one of their sessions, Freud says, I'm learning things. And Dora says, what? I've just been talking. Have we really made any progress? That's a paraphrase. What she actually says is, quote, why, why has anything so very remarkable come out, end quote. And Freud says, these words prepared me for the advent of fresh revelations. They then engage in dialogue about some moments in Dora's past. Freud has zeroed in on an incident that Dora had with a man he calls Mr. K, Herr K. I'll call him Mr. K. Mr. K has attempted to seduce Dora, which Freud believes has caused her issues. It's at the root of her problems. The incident with Mr. K and her repression or sublimation of it. Now, she tells him about another girl, a governess who confided in Dora that Mr. K had hit on her, had forced himself on her, and she had given way. That had happened a few days before Dora had her incident with Mr. K. And Freud said, and again, don't listen to the the details of the analysis here. Just listen to the narrative style 
and think of the effect that Freud and the way he's portraying this have on the story and the reader. Imagine Freud as Sherlock Holmes, not trying to figure out and announce the details of a crime, but solving a mystery nevertheless. Here's Freud, quote, Here, therefore, was a piece of material coming to light in the middle of the analysis and helping to solve problems which had previously been raised. I was able to say to Dora, Now I know your motive for the slap in the face with which you answered Herr K.'s proposal. It was not that you were offended at his suggestions. You were actuated by jealousy and revenge. At the time when the governess was telling you her story, you were still able to make use of your gift for putting on one side everything that is not agreeable to your feelings. But at the moment when Herr K. used the words, I get nothing out of my wife, which were the same words he had used to the governess, fresh emotions were aroused in you and tipped the balance. Does he dare, you said to yourself, to treat me like a governess, like a servant? Wounded pride added to jealousy and to the conscious motives of common sense. It was too much. To prove to you how deeply impressed you were by the governess's story, let me draw your attention to the repeated occasions upon which you have identified yourself with her, both in your dream and in your conduct. You told your parents what happened, a fact we have hitherto been unable to account for, just as the governess wrote and told her parents. You gave me a fortnight's warning, just like a governess. The letter in the dream which gave you leave to go home is the counterpart of the governess's letter from her parents forbidding her to do so. Then Dora says, Then why did I not tell my parents at once? And Freud says, How much time did you allow to elapse? Dora again, The scene took place on the last day of June. I told my mother about it on July 14th. Again a fortnight! says Freud, the time characteristic for a person in service. Now I can answer your question. You understood the poor girl very well. She did not want to go away at once because she still had hopes, because she expected that Herke's affections would return to her again. So that must have been your motive too. You waited for that length of time so as to see whether he would repeat his proposals. If he had, you would have concluded that he was in earnest and did not mean to play with you as he had done with the governess. A few days after I had left, he sent me a picture postcard. Dora says, conveniently, for Freud and his narrative, Yes, Freud answers, but when after that nothing more came, you gave free rein to your feelings of revenge. I can even imagine that at that time you thought your accusation might be a means of inducing him to travel to the place where you were living. As he actually offered to do at first, Dora threw in. In that way, your longing for him would have been appeased. Here she nodded assent, a thing which I had not expected. That's the end of the passage, or I'll, I'll cut it off there. It goes on. All the clues we've gotten in the first 90 or so pages of this case history are presented now in a dramatic revelation. The patient herself is nodding, adding details, confirming, ah, yes, it all makes sense. You have unlocked me, Mr. Freud. Dr. Freud, Freud, if you read it cynically, 
this narrative and, and other writings of Freud, you read it cynically and you think, come on, come on. This is one leap after another. Just because there's these two week periods, does that make everything connect? Does it re is it really significant the way that Freud is claiming it is? It's one leap after another. Once again, it reminds me of Plato's Socrates, where the interlocutors are dupes, and it feels like they're dumb when Socrates needs them to be dumb, and they all make leaps and conclusions that are totally unjustified by logic. But it moves things forward. If you look closely and cynically, you'll doubt that this is as magical as Freud makes it out to be. But if you accept it and go along for the ride and give Freud lots of room and benefits of the doubt, it's amazing stuff. At one point in Dora, a patient brings a box to a session and says, look at this, it's an ivory box. I keep sweets in it and look how hard it is to open. She fumbles with it with her fingers and Freud says, why have you never told me about this before? Again, who cares other than it raises the stakes. There must be some mystery to this. There must be some significance. Why have you never told me about this before? Freud immediately seizes upon the importance of this box of sweets, and we're taking Freud's word for it. It's like Holmes saying, you didn't tell me, Watson, that he arrived on foot and not in a carriage. And where Holmes finds something significant about the man's background or predilections from that, which he uses to help him ultimately solve a crime or just to show off, just to establish some credibility, Freud finds significance too. Freud says about this ivory box, don't you see? The box is like the female genitals. And by struggling to open it, you're doing what you really want to be doing, which is masturbating. The problem is solved, just as it is with Holmes. And the reader is left with a few impressions Number one, wow, what a brilliant observer this man is at the heart of our narrative. Number two, he's so brilliant he finds answers to questions when nobody else even noticed that those were the right questions to ask. And number three, wouldn't it be cool if I could do that too? Save thought number three for a moment. Here's Freud in Dora after he makes this revelation regarding the jewel box. Quote, there is a great deal of symbolism of this kind in life, but as a rule we pass it by without heeding it. When I set myself the task of bringing to light what human beings keep hidden within them, not by the compelling power of hypnosis, but by observing what they say and what they show, I thought the task was a harder one than it really is. He that has eyes to see and ears to hear may convince himself that no mortal can keep a secret. If his lips are silent, he chatters with his fingertips. Betrayal oozes out of him at every pore, and thus the task of making conscious the most hidden recesses of the mind is one which it is quite possible to accomplish. End quote. We will return to the story of Dora later, but let's look at the number three I mentioned earlier. Wouldn't it be cool if I could do this too? No doubt there were and are detectives and private investigators who were inspired by Sherlock Holmes to dig into crimes, to work through details, to solve puzzles, to be a hero. And psychoanalysts motivated by a desire to help people 
fanned out across Europe and the Americas. After Freud, well, how about literature? Here, too, the seduction of Freud's method and the interpretive framework that he provided proved irresistible to critics. And to writers, too, I suppose. Here was not just a method for interpretation, but conclusions and motivations. A character wants to sleep with his mother and kill his father. Well, there's a plot for you. You need to know what a villain did, why the villain behaved the way that he did. Well, Freud's probably got something that you can borrow from. You could say repressing the instincts can have other consequences. Okay, noted. And... You can work it into your novel, perhaps, and Freudian slips, yes, please. Dreams to symbolize deep-rooted desires. Don't mind if I do, says the novelist. But the big draw, if you want to be a detective of the mind, and you're not actually a psychoanalyst, if you're, let's say, a literary critic, is to apply these methods of interpretations and start analyzing literature. Freud gave us a powerful tool. He put the critic, the analyst, the interpreter at the heart of the project. The critic is the hero. Writers are in some sense a dupe. Victims of impulses they themselves have repressed. It's up to the critic to read the clues and unmask the villain, so to speak, unmask what's really going on with this writer or with this character or in this text. Here's a reference to fire. Aha, says the Freudian critic. That's a symbol. Here's the color white. Aha, again, I can tell you what this really means. And if the author objects and says, no, that's not what I really meant, the answer is built in. From the Freudian critic, no need to have your intention considered. Dear author, you no doubt have repressed your instincts. If you follow Freud... This makes sense. If you're cynical about it, you'd say, this means the interpretation is always correct. It can't be proven wrong. There's no way to falsify it. If I say this story about a man on his way to slay a dragon is really about men wanting to kill their fathers, who can say I'm wrong? Even if the author himself or herself says, no, that's not it at all. Stop trying to say that this comes from childhood trauma or my fear of castration or my anal phase, or whatever other Freudian element you want to offer, whatever theory, penis envy for the women, Oedipal complexes for the men, if even the author says, no, that car is red because I like the color red, or my neighbor happened to have a red car I was looking at when I was writing, or I chose red because to me it represents a bit of flair, the kind of car someone fighting off a midlife crisis might have. It really doesn't have anything to do with some long-ago incident that you're imagining, Mr. Freudian critic, where I was horrified to learn of menstruation, if the author's word doesn't trump the critics, then there's no source that can. A whole new territory is open to our literary conquistadors. It's as if they've discovered vast new continents to explore. And they did. And writers pushed back. First, they pushed back at the idea that they themselves should be the subject of the psychoanalysis. Freud said this, quote, Accordingly, the literary work must then be treated like a dream, applying psychoanalytic techniques to the text to uncover the author's hidden motivations, 
repressed desires and wishes, end quote. And writers said, nope, we're not having this. And then they pushed back at the idea that their characters should be analyzed. Nabokov was one of the leaders here in both, on both fronts, that the author and the character should be subject to psychoanalysis by armchair observers. It's not hard to see why. For Nabokov writing books about a guy in love with and having sex with a prepubescent girl. Nabokov would say, I'm an artist. This is art. I am in control of this. I'm making choices. I know what I'm saying. I know what I want to say. I know how I want to say it. I don't need a critic stumbling in here and telling me, like waving a flashlight around and saying, I'm, here's what you think of, here's what, uh, from Nabokov's point of view, telling me what I think about what I think. That's how it looked to Nabokov. Why would I need someone to tell me what I think about what I think? I can tell you what I think. Nabokov wrote a story called Signs and Symbols that I've always read as a direct attack on people, on critics who try to read literature in this in one-for-one one way. A dream about a house represents your mind or something. Freud's defenders will say, well, Freud didn't really believe that either. He didn't think there was a dream dictionary, some kind of list of X means Y, but Freud often does accompany his symbol reading. Well, he, he accompanies his symbol reading with context and analysis. It'll say, this is what it means for this patient based on other things the patient has said, and you never can know, but in this case, this is what I put together. But Freud's followers didn't always limit themselves to that. Jung went deep into the idea that symbols are there for all of us. There's a universality to them. Fire and flame symbolize warmth and love and feeling and passion. And Freud says that too. In Dora, she dreams that a house, she dreams about a house on fire, and he says, fire is associated with love and passion. And then he adds, it's a lesson we're taught as children, too. Don't play with fire. You were taught that by your father. See how this all works? The problem for someone like Nabokov is that he says, yes, yes, of course, artists know this or intuit it when they're when they're selecting fire, they know that it's it's love and warmth, like a warm fireplace, and they know that it's danger too, and they know that it can be a conjure up the image of a child playing with matches, and it can be the steady glow of a candle, and it can mean all of those things, or some of them. You can you you just have to be complex in how you interpret a choice like that. You have to recognize that artists know why they choose fire, what that brings in. You can't say, aha, I've figured out this puzzle because you bring some overdetermined idea to the reading. The point is not that you discern secret meanings. Objects and adjectives and words have associations. Definitely, these can reveal moods or the unconscious or secrets, but they're not clues for literary detectives to discover so they can announce the true meaning of a book and then look around to wait for the astonished applause. Those are there for readers to take and to have the readerly experience that readers have been getting from writers 
since the days when a writer was a bard sitting around a fire telling stories. Surprise, delight, understanding, empathy. What is this character doing? What do they want? What are they afraid of? Why are they acting this way? And would we act this way too? And how does a person in love make us happy? And does a person seeking revenge make our heart race? Do we want him to succeed? How deep does this go? How deep will this story take us into the human mind and heart? We don't approach our literature looking for a solution so we can put the book down, the mystery solved, our answer provided. We look for an experience so we can put the book down, mysteries explored, the answers giving away to new questions and new understandings and a deeper sense of what it means to be alive. When we read literature, we don't need to be a detective. We just need to be a human being. And a great work of art is not a picture with a hole in it, like a a puzzle awaiting a piece to be snapped into place. A novel, a poem, a play, these are pictures that we are privileged to admire or, at times, to enter. In a sense, you go inside that world, look around, you think and feel, you engage. Then you return. Maybe you now have something new, something in your hand, let's say, a bit of something, a piece, and maybe it does fit a hole, maybe to make it complete or to let us see a little more of the picture. But the puzzle with the hole, where we're trying to fit the piece, is not literature. The puzzle is you. Okay, there we go. My thanks to Sigmund Freud for provoking these ideas, enlarging the circumference... And my thanks to Professor Goodspeed Chadwick and archivist Peter Steinberg. We will look forward to their fall episode next week. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. ¶¶